0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning and welcome to the F.A. Hayek Auditorium. My name is Dan Eikenson. I am the director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato. We've assembled really an excellent panel for you today. I don't think you've ever heard a moderator say, <laughs> assembled, a mediocre one. But these guys are truly uh, authoritative on, on the topic. Um, the, the The impetus for this Discussion is the publication today of a paper uh, that we commissioned from Scott Lincecum uh, called Countervailing Calamity, uh, How to Stop the Global Subsidies Race, and it's uh, chock full of information. I hope you have a chance to take a look at it. Uh, What we're going to do today is have uh, Tim Carney speak a little bit about subsidies and corporate welfare, and uh, then Scott is going to present some of the findings in his paper, and then John Magnus is going to mention the things that he agrees with and those that he does not disagree with. So it could be a, a slightly lively debate. Um, I edited Scott's paper, and I think my, my, uh, one of my contributions was the title. And uh, people asked me about calamity. Is that really a little uh, hyperbolic? Uh, and, you know, I, so I looked it up. And the definition of, of calamity is an event causing great or often sudden damage or distress, uh, a disaster, an event that brings terrible loss, lasting distress, or severe affliction. So, yeah, maybe it's a little hyperbolic, uh, but just a bit. Uh, we have to compete with other people who have big stories to tell. Uh, and subsidies, I mean, Americans are suffering from crisis fatigue to a certain extent. Remember a couple of years ago it looked like we might balance the budget and come uh, up with a plan to to, to bring the rain the debt in. Then there was a one-tenth of a percent downtick in unemployment, and the problem was gone, and nobody talked about it uh, very seriously again. But subsidies are a huge problem. Uh, according to Cato's uh, TAD DeHaven, corporate welfare in the federal budget amounts to about a hundred billion dollars a year. Now the subsidies that Scott is going to discuss are, are a subset of those. They're trade distorting subsidies. Uh and by the way, Tad's paper I think was out there, and I hope you get a copy of that as well. Uh subsidies have, have been with us for a while. We've had agricultural subsidies, but I, I mean I think the the root of the problem uh finds itself in the Great Recession and in its aftermath. Uh there was the TARP, the big bank bailouts, the auto bailouts, uh and then I think pondering among policymakers about, you know, why are we growing out of this recession so slowly compared to the Chinese who have been growing at uh, double-digit uh, rates of growth for about 30 years. What have they done wrong? What have we done right? And I think one of the things that was latched onto was industrial policy. Uh, we need to start picking some industries, the industries of the future, and, and putting our money behind them. And I think that's gotten us into some hot water. Um, we we talked there was concern back in the in the aftermath of the recession you know G20 leaders were meeting with one another reassuring each other that they would not engage in tit for tat protectionism and i think basically what was what they had in mind were, were, were tariffs but we've seen subsidies ramped up around the world in a tit for tat sort of fashion so i would say subsidies really are uh, the trade war that we've been experiencing um We've seen manifestations of industrial policy lately in our uh, aggressive assertion of national security threats to keep Chinese companies out. Uh, whether it's in uh, wind tower technology, uh, whether it's in uh, ha- has to do with the uh, the most recent uh, case of uh, um, Huawei. Forget- uh, yes, <laughs> Huawei and ZTE. Uh, yes, there might be some national security interests or issues there, but there is also the the looming specter of protectionism in in those reports. So we're here to discuss whether or not subsidies can be reined in, whether the U.S. countervailing duty law should be part of that solution, and if so, how we rein it in, or how we reform it to make it less protectionist uh, and more remedial. So uh, let me introduce the speakers. They're going to speak in succession, uh, and uh, our first speaker will be Tim Carney. And Tim is the senior political columnist uh, at the Washington Examiner, and he's the author of two books. Uh, Tim is a protege of the late columnist Robert Novak, uh, as Tim was senior reporter at the Evans Novak Political Report and became editor uh, after Novak retired in 2008. Tim is an occasional panelist on the McLaughlin Group uh, and has been an MSNBC contributor. His work has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, The New York Post, uh, and many other publications. Uh, He is author of Obamanomics. From 2009 and the big ripoff in 2006 uh, which actually won the Templeton Enterprise Award uh, from the Intercollegiate Studies Institute and the 2006 Lysander Spooner Award for the best book on Liberty uh, Tim is a New York native and an alumnus of St. John's College in Annapolis he now lives in Silver Spring with his wife and four children after Tim we'll take a seat and then Scott will get up here to the lectern Scott is an international trade attorney with white and case Uh, He has extensive experience in trade litigation before the United States uh, Department of Commerce, the U.S. International Trade Commission, uh, the Court of International Trade, the European Commission, the World Trade Organization's dispute settlement body. Uh, He's also advised corporate and sovereign clients on U.S. bilateral and regional agreements uh, and American trade policy, uh, as well as WTO matters, including accessions, uh, compliance, and the Doha round of multilateral trade negotiations. Scott is also a prodigious blogger, he blogs at lincecum.blogpost.com. Blogspot.com, sorry. Uh, The Wall Street Journal referred to him as a guy who can get in the weeds with the best of them on international trade issues. So that's pretty good. Uh, Before getting uh, the green light to produce his first solo piece uh, for us here at Cato, (laughs) uh, Scott co-authored a couple of papers with me, uh, including Audaciously Hopeful, Uh, how President Obama can restore the pro-trade consensus as if (laughs) uh, and beyond exports, uh, a better case for free trade. Uh, In 2008, Scott served as a senior trade policy advisor for Senator John McCain's uh, presidential campaign. And from 1998 to 2001, Scott worked with us here as a research assistant uh, in the Center for Trade Policy Studies. Uh, Scott has a B.A. in political science uh, from the University of Virginia and a J.D. from the University School of Law. And then after Scott, we will turn to John Magnus. Uh, John has been an active trade practitioner for 21 years, uh, serving as external counsel to domestic and foreign firms and industry coalitions in sectors such as steel, forest products, chemicals, microelectronics, aerospace, I mean, the whole gamut, all the way down to textile apparel, apparel, footwear, tobacco. Uh, He advises and represents clients on multilateral negotiations and WTO disputes on regional and bilateral trade initiatives, on US trade legislation and congressional oversight activities, on market access cases involving goods and services, on foreign governments' trade regimes and industrial policy measures, uh, and on customs and compliance issues. He also advises foreign governments on their trade regimes and implementation of WTO rules. Uh, John has litigated numerous anti-dumping and countervailing duty and other import-related cases before the Commerce Department and the International Trade Commission, uh, as well as the reviewing courts and binational panels. Uh, He has also handled Section 301 cases before the USTR uh, and helped to defend U.S. measures and prosecute U.S. complaints in numerous GATT WTO dispute settlement proceedings. John is also an adjunct professor uh, at the Washington College of Law at American University, uh, where he teaches a course entitled Understanding the United States Trade Regime. Uh, Mr. Magnus is also on the roster of trade remedy experts established under Chapter 19 of of the NAFTA, so he's eligible for service on binational panels in these uh, to review anti dumping and countervailing duty determinations issued by the governments of Canada, Mexico, and the United States. John holds a JD from the University of Chicago Law School uh, and an AB in international relations from Stanford. So I'm going to welcome to the podium Tim Carney to start us off. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you for coming. Congratulations to Scott on this paper. One of the terms Scott spends some time on in the paper is the, to show sort of the complexity, the arbitrariness sometimes of these uh, our responses to foreign uh, trade practices. So he talks about whom we consider a non-market economy. And with my reporting on US economic policies, non-market economy kind of rang a bell. And I wondered, to what extent are we a non-market economy? Um, the we certainly don't let markets set the price of the energy we buy or the what sources of energy we get or the auto companies that get to exist or who gets to succeed in exporting or manufacturing. The government is very heavily involved in that, more so today, but also the case under um, under President Bush as well and, and previous presidents. And I always use as a, the prime example of a an American company that is uh, – what might have been called by there was a professor Burt Folsom who wrote uh, the Myth of the Robber Barons, and he distinguished between market entrepreneurs and political entrepreneurs. Boeing is one of our leading political entrepreneurs in America today. Um, the when Europe first came after Boeing for um, subsidized, because you know Europe has their own subsidized uh, jet maker, Airbus. And when Europe was coming after us last decade, they said, "Well, all of these defense contracts to Boeing count as subsidies." To some extent, that's Europe, you know, not really believing in defense since uh, for the last few decades. But to another extent, there were, you know, the Air Force was lining up to lease these seven sixty sevens as in air fuel tankers, and that a woman went to jail over that because she left uh, Pentagon and went and. Uh, procurement, and then went and got a job at Boeing after that. They get all sorts of... They're one of the leading military contractors. Boeing is by far the king of getting export subsidies through the Export-Import Bank. This is a government agency, brags about how most of its uh, subsidies for U.S. exports go to small businesses, but that's just counting each deal. If you count by dollar amount... Depending on how you count, somewhere between two-thirds and 80% of export-import-bank funding subsidies subsidizes the sales of Boeing jets. And uh, it goes beyond that. The states are handing money out to Boeing, where Washington Governor Gary Locke actually held something, a legislative session called the Boeing Session, a special session just to hand out hundreds of millions of dollars of subsidies to keep some Boeing manufacturing in Washington. When they were looking for their... Uh, where to move their corporate headquarters to all these cities and states were bidding with this corporate welfare Illinois gave them $63 million in handouts to move to Chicago my favorite though was that Boeing wanted a block of office spaces in downtown Chicago and they couldn't get enough floors together in the building they wanted so Mayor of Chicago wrote a $1 million check to the current tenant so that they would move out and Boeing got to move in so this is what this is the, the sort of situation that they um, that they work in But I was talking to some Boeing guys at the Export-Import Bank annual conference earlier this year, and I used the word subsidy, and all of them got really upset. They said, we don't get any subsidies. And I said, okay, so the U.S. government loans money to your overseas buyers, and that's not a subsidy? And they said, no, well, because the Export-Import Bank has been making a profit for recent years, and so taxpayers aren't actually paying for it. This is why one of the things I'm happy Scott really does in his papers, he lays out, first of all, I'll just say that's not the normal understanding of a subsidy. Most people say if government policy is coming and helping one company, that's a subsidy. And it turns out that the closest thing we have to an official definition of this, the WTO definition, which some people say is itself too narrow, um that is that says it has to a subsidy is anything that's a financial contribution conferred by government or some government like uh public body that confers a benefit on a private party. So you talk to the head of export import bank and he has barked at me he says tim you write that we subsidize these companies we don't no we do subsidize them and, they, and we do this in every industry it's not just in exports um, general electric in obamonomics i call them the for profit arm of the obama administration because obama would say we need more passenger rail GE goes and hires Linda Daschle, the wife of Obama confidant Tom Daschle, as their rail lobbyist and starts building up new trains. We need more embryonic stem cells. GE does a partnership with with Geron, one of the biggest stem cell makers. Uh, We need more batteries for our, our rails. So they open a new battery factory subsidized in upstate New York. These companies are increasingly dancing to the tune that's called by government and then not having to worry about markets doing it. And the bigger guys often are doing it more than the smaller guys. And the GE CEO, Jeff Immelt, makes it explicit. A year ago, he was on 60 Minutes, and he said, I want you to root for me. Everyone in Germany roots for Siemens. Everyone in Japan roots for Toshiba. Everybody in China roots for China China South Rail. I want you to say, win GE. So this is the mindset, not just of the GE CEO, but I think it's not coincidental that he is the job czar for Barack Obama. I think when Barack Obama says the words, win the future, when Barack Obama sort of talks jingoistic and says, we can't let... Spain beat us in in windmills, or we can't let China beat us in solar panels. He's saying that. We ought to behave like Jeff Immelt wants us to. Uh, The year before, Immelt at Export-Import Bank annual conference said, Germany is the model. Germany, he said, had more, quote, public will and, quote, national vision. He said in Germany. Quote, the companies roam as a pack, they stick together, and the government supports the companies to be exporters. And in the same speech, he enviously described China's, quote, incredible unanimity of purpose from top to bottom. This is what Obama's export czar wants. It's slightly stronger version of, I think, what President Obama has been putting in place. And it appeals across partisan lines. But when Obama says win the future, he has his jingoistic talk. He talks about the, the auto companies in Detroit that he, uh, he bailed out. Um, th- that's what he's doing. He's talking about subsidizing our guys, which is interesting because the colleagues, the cohorts he has in this sort of thing are often people who call themselves free traders. And so Gary Locke, he was a commerce director. He was the governor of Washington who had the Boeing session. He would go out there and talk about free trade. And what he meant was building down some of the, the tariffs that we have between two countries. So it's this interesting duality that a lot of these uh, people think they can do, especially politicians, but also corporate executives, where they say, well, we believe in free trade, and we think America ought to, help, American government ought to help American business. So by free trade, they simply mean that the government shouldn't impose import restrictions, shouldn't have tariffs, shouldn't have import quotas. But they say, oh, well, there's nothing wrong with subsidizing. That's also pro-business. And that's where you see the little confusion, the confusion between pro-business and pro-market. And our politicians in both parties make that conflation all the time. And the, the businessmen often make that conflation. But I want to read a quote from one man, uh, one of my favorite lobbyists in town, because he's honest, He, uh, Cal Cohen runs something called the Emergency Committee on American Trade. And I called him up. I was writing about this, and I called him up, and I said, so, I mean, do you guys really believe in free trade? And he said, free trade is a theoretical construct. What we're talking about is practical business transactions. And so this is the mindset of American business lobby, I think. This is a mindset of a lot of... <laughs> Governments that any talk of free trade simply means governments shouldn't get in our ability to buy some foreign goods, but it doesn't mean that businesses should have to compete on their own we subsidize agriculture we subsidize we keep out foreign sugar we give loan guarantees to current sugar we subsidize our exports we subsidize green energy we subsidize dirty energy as as they would say we have mandates that you buy insurance and also the mandates cover you have to you know your utilities have to buy solar or wind uh, pharma has been the big. The drug industry has been getting by on getting forcing people to buy their goods through individual mandates in the healthcare bill, getting subsidies like that. Ethanol is one big story of handouts and subsidies. We're bailing out automakers. We're bailing out banks. Um, the green energy stuff isn't just the cylindra subsidies. It's also all sorts of tax credits. Um, and at times we do corporate welfare through. Um, through protectionism, whether it's Bush's uh, steel stuff or Obama's tire um, things, and so the uh, the closest thing I have to a uh, a criticism of Scott's paper at this point, because um, I'm not going to be the one diving into into the weeds on the policies is the, the hopefulness for an overhaul of all of our various subsidy things. There's not enough of a concentrated benefit to getting rid of these overhauls, that the people who benefit from it, that Boeing getting these billions of dollars in subsidies costs every taxpayer 2 or $3. And if they repay Export-Import Bank, it doesn't really cost us at all. So then all our, our objections are is that it's market distorting that's a, an unseen cost for the most part because we don't see what the market would be otherwise. Um, it's the same with sugar. Um, even there, there's a concentrated cost where you've got these candy makers who want to buy sugar cheap, but we keep out foreign sugar to protect the sugar growers in Florida. The sugar growers win. The candy makers lose because the candy makers, they want to be able to import the sugar, but at the end of the day, they can just go and move their plants across the river into Canada. And so, or into Mexico, and that's what they end up doing. The lobbying force will always be on the side of the guys looking for the subsidies and the handouts and the corporate welfare. And so, I would want a sort of creative solution to how we can get a popular lobbying force behind rolling back all of these special favors. Thank you for your time.
2: Want to miss my graphic here, the Priuses. My... <laughs> um, but thank you, Tim. Thanks, Dan. Um, <clears throat> again, my name is Scott Linsicum, um, and I hope that you all will have a chance to really dig into my paper that was released today. Um, it is thick, and uh, you don't need to do it all in one setting, sitting. Um, but it definitely, I think, uh, illuminates a lot of the the problems um, that that Tim just got into. Um, Before I begin, let me just say that it is uh, a thrill to be standing right here as a former Cato intern and someone who carried the microphone and and did all of these wonderful things. Fourteen years later, I have arrived behind the podium. It's very exciting. Thank you. Thank you. No, stop. Stop. So really, thank you. It's great. Uh, Really excited to be here. Um, And I'm, I'm excited to talk about my paper, which I think is is covering a subject that uh, doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, we talk about subsidies. And I think Tim does an awesome job talking about all of the various types of crony capitalism and, and subsidization out there. And if you don't follow Tim on Twitter or read his stuff, you really should. It's great, horribly depressing, but great. <laughs> um, now. I'm going to just kind of give you a, an overview of the paper. I'm not going to dig into some of the weeds today, um, just because I don't want to put you to sleep. Um, but uh, I want to start with kind of a, a basic overview and then, and then get to some of my recommendations. Um, so first, as Tim kind of alluded to with respect to the United States, you know, global subsidies are, are a big problem. Um, the Since the financial crisis of 2008, uh, we've seen Rampant stimulus and targeted subsidies all over the world. Um, since uh, starting in about 2009, the, the World Trade Organization and the OECD uh, started putting out these these reports, um, looking at how protectionism and how subsidies are doing. And each of these reports, um, and it's it's uh, semi-annually. And each of the reports uh, follows kind of the same. Uh, general theme, and they start out saying, everything's great. We've resisted major protectionism. Everything's great. Then you read a little more, and they go, well, except all of those stimulus subsidies are still hanging around. Um, there are 2009, here they are, 2010, 2011, still around. And even worse, uh, in many cases, the targeted subsidies to favored industries are actually increasing. Uh, The examples they provide in the reports are things like automobiles, agriculture, textiles, and green goods. And I'll talk about those a little bit more with respect to the United States in just a second. Uh, And the other important point is that these policies continued despite express diplomatic commitments to avoid protectionism and avoid subsidies and commitments among the G20 member governments and other governments to to cut back on all of the industrial subsidies that they felt were totally necessary to get us out of the financial crisis in in 2008 and into 2009. So with that background, um, what are some of the problems with with all of these subsidies, right? First and most obviously are the economic harms and the distortions. Uh, you know, if you subsidize one industry in one place, you cause major problems with supply and demand. In another place, I don't really need to give an economics lesson because I'm a lawyer and I'll probably get it wrong anyway. Um, but the OECD, uh, in another report, looked at all of these subsidies and found overwhelmingly negative effects on domestic economies and global trade flows because of this rampant industrial subsidization. So beyond that, there's the whole cronyism issue. And this is something Tim's reported on here in the United States, but it's all over the world. As you see, uh, favorite industries and unions lobbying governments to give them taxpayer money uh, on oftentimes less than meritorious grounds. And of course, This cronyism is is not only a problem for what it uh, breeds directly with respect to straining public budgets and causing these economic distortions, but of course, as good people like Tim report on them, uh, it undermines public support for free trade and free markets and uh, and capitalism, as people uh, think that what GE does is what capitalism is. And of course, that's simply not the case. Now... The other big problem is is it leads to an increase in protectionism. Uh, As domestic producers lobby their governments for protection from allegedly subsidized imports, Um, we again see this a lot in the United States, and I'll talk a little more about this in a second, but you really get a snowball effect with respect to subsidies in international trade. Uh, One country will subsidize its industry, and then another industry in another country will complain very loudly that it needs protection or it needs subsidies. Rinse and repeat, and you do it over and over again. And again, uh, the WTO and OECD have found uh, somewhat an increase in target protectionism. Um, And then again, we have, in, in my world, an inevitable increase in domestic and WTO subsidy litigation. Now, the domestic litigation is through the US countervailing duty law or other countries' countervailing duty laws. Tim actually hit on more of the rules than I was going to discuss today. Uh, But these rules are generally accepted. They're codified in the WTO agreements and then promulgated throughout um, by individual nations with respect to their own national anti-subsidy laws. Um, and as you can see here, the numbers are pretty stark. We Right before the financial crisis, we had a much lower level of CVD initiations, uh, and we had a much, uh, the United States involvement uh, continue to be quite high in, in a, a lot of these cases. Typically, the United States as the initiator, but more and more we're becoming a target. And this wasn't in my paper, but I received a great email from the World Bank's uh, Chad Bown, who. Um, looks into global CVD policy, and he said, you know, I I really, I think your paper's really interesting, but you should know that a lot of developing countries are getting their own CVD laws. And the concern, of course, is that as they look to the United States uh, as a major applier of anti-subsidy rules, U.S. exports will start becoming increasingly subject to their CVD measures in, in other countries. So we've established that it's a the global subsidies are a problem. Now, the question is well, what can US policymakers do? Well, the first, uh, the first uh, response, and, and clearly the worst, is just respond with more subsidies, right? This is, uh, we can call it the Obama model, which is a race to outcompete other industries by investing in our industries. Uh, in President Obama's State of the Union, two years running. He's talked about how um, China and Korea are investing in clean energy. And we have to do the same. And we have to uh, respond with more subsidies. And we also see this very much from the protectionist wing of Congress. But of course, responding with subsidies will only make the problems that I described in the previous slide worse. Well, so the next option is to do nothing. Well, this is the ideal free market solution. economists will tell you that why shouldn't we let other countries subsidize our consumption? That's the point of of, uh, production anyway, is consumption, as Adam Smith will tell us. So why don't we just do nothing? Well, first and obviously, remember, subsidies are bad. They do bad things. By doing nothing, you're encouraging bad things. But beyond that, doing nothing encourages subsidies not only abroad, but at home. What you see a lot in the United States, and this is what I, what I hope is a theme of my paper, is that uh, a major problem is that subsidy, foreign subsidies are used a, as an excuse for domestic subsidies. The, and this isn't just from the kind of big government guys like uh, Sherrod Brown or someone like that. Um, in fact, we saw a Tea Party icon, Marco Rubio, get up and defend sugar subsidies by saying, well, look, everybody else is subsidizing their sugar. And I have to support these sugar subsidies so we can compete. And if you, so if you do nothing, you, you leave the door open for this type of response. So the next option is we can, we can use diplomacy, right? Well, as I just mentioned, we've already tried that. The G20 has repeatedly met over the last few years to commit to uh, slowing the rise or cutting back uh, protectionism, and targeted subsidization. And as we've seen from subsequent reports, that just ain't happening. So uh, what we've seen is the best that that these negotiations appear to be able to accomplish is a prevention of serious backsliding. Um, They don't really arrest the current expansion um, of subsidies or lead to what's far more important at this stage is the reform and elimination of uh, subsidies at home and abroad. So finally, this is the option that I advocate, and that is to develop and utilize legitimate anti-subsidy disciplines. Now, what are anti-subsidy disciplines? Well, I already mentioned this a little bit, and and Tim did as well. Um, They are real, concrete disciplines on the most egregious types of subsidies, the most trade-distorting types of subsidies. And most importantly, these rules are voluntarily agreed by all uh, 150 plus WTO members. This is a big deal. I mean, how often do you get a bunch of governments together in a room to agree to actually limit their own uh, political behavior? And let's face it, subsidization is a very political behavior. Uh, And if they are... Adju- okay, so so that's kind of what the rules are. Um, but now, how are they adjudicated? Well, there's two ways. First is through WTO dispute settlement and more often through CVD investigations. Now, um, I want to make clear that you know, I don't really advocate in the paper one avenue or another. I don't want to. I, I, in fact, I think probably uh, WTO dispute settlement is a little better uh, because of a lot of different. First, of it's it's an independent arbiter, but second, the the ways that you can prove injury or adverse effects, as it's called, or are, are more broad at the WTO. Uh, but that really doesn't matter for kind of the broader uh, perspective of my paper. Um, so next is. Uh, what happens if you lose a dispute? Well, that's countermeasures um, after consultations, and typically this is duties on the subsidized imports. So what can they do? They spotlight offending subsidies, and they often lead to the removal. Now, these are not a panacea, um, but I think they can help. Uh, And I see uh, three main ways. First, they can directly discourage subsidies by offsetting potential export benefits and publicly shaming subsidizing governments. We actually see this a good bit. Uh, The United States, when it is targeted in a subsidy dispute, particularly at the WTO, uh, is quick to force to defend its actions and occasionally does reform them, and other governments do the same. Second is they remove a lot of the political attractiveness of subsidies by stigmatizing them as illegal, and by establishing, as I mentioned, legitimate, widely accepted ways to neutralize them. Third uh, is that they discourage this subsidy protectionism arms race that I talked about. Uh, And they do this two ways. First is by providing legal assurances that other government subsidies will be neutralized, uh, essentially saying to, to those politicians that feel that They need to provide new subsidies in order to counteract foreign subsidies. No, look, we can take care of this through our anti-subsidy rules. We don't have to throw more taxpayer dollars at it. And then second, uh, and what I think is a very important tool that is very much underutilized, is revealing the illegitimacy of most political demands for protectionism and retaliation. We saw this a good bit in the solar panels case, as the level of subsidization found was much lower. And this is the US investigation of Chinese solar panels. Level of subsidization was much lower than what was being claimed by a lot of protectionists in Congress. So the problem is the United States is a huge subsidizer and is in no position to lead any global reform efforts related to subsidies. Dan mentioned some of the top line numbers 100 million in direct and indirect business subsidies, up from 90 million, 2.5 trillion, yes, trillion dollars in temporary stimulus since 2008. Then we have some depressing bipartisan examples, each detailed in my paper. The auto bailouts costing 45 billion in direct and indirect losses. GM and Chrysler, of course, are still struggling. Billions of dollars to the agriculture into agribusiness uh, and special commodity support, uh, dairy farmers, cotton, peanuts. And then, of course, my favorite green goods 24 billion in 2011, and a mind numbing stat 538 different state and federal subsidies for alternative fuels. Um, and then last, the one you may have heard about debated in Congress right now, an extension of the wind production tax credit for one year is uh, it's $12 billion more. So the problems with all of these subsidies are, many of them parallel the, the problems I have already mentioned globally. They hurt the economy, they breed cronyism and uncertainty, and they undermine American support for free markets. They also cause a lot of trade disputes. Uh, Tim mentioned the Boeing Airbus dispute, but we've seen uh, Chinese countervailing duty investigation of subsidized GM and Chrysler cars because of the bailouts. We've seen uh, several CVD investigations of U.S. biofuels and alternative fuels. Uh, We now see a new Chinese investigation of subsidized American polysilicon. And then, of course, Brazil has... uh, won the right to retaliate against the United States for US cotton subsidies. And that has resulted in not the removal of the US cotton subsidies, but $140 million in American taxpayer money going to Brazilian cotton farmers. Hush money (laughs) thats what this is. And so clearly, the current approach isn't working. And then finally, as I mentioned, All of this undermines US credibility on international subsidy reform. The other big problem is that the United States is a huge anti-subsidizer. Now, in and of itself, this wouldn't be a problem. And I've provided uh, top line stats here. We have 50 CVD orders on 12 countries, hitting about $11 in trade. China's the most frequent target. And I would note that those numbers are actually a bit misleading because, of course, Once you impose the duties, the trade volumes go down quite significantly. Uh, And we actually see that in my paper. We have a big table that has all the disputes. And you can see pending cases have a lot more trade involved than completed cases, thereby showing uh, quite a uh, discouraging effect that our CVD orders have on foreign imports. Of course, there's also... Uh, several WTO disputes. I've already mentioned uh, the Airbus dispute that we've, uh, and of course we've taken Chinese wind power equipment. Uh, President Obama just recently announced a new dispute against Chinese auto subsidies uh, and did that with a straight face, by the way. It's pretty (laughs) impressive. Um, Now, like I said, you know, the use of CVD measures in and of themselves, uh, in my opinion, is not a problem because they discourage government behavior. It's not like anti-dumping rules that target private practicing. These rules are intended to target bad government behavior. But they are attacks on U.S. consumers, and there are tens of millions of dollars of duties paid each year by American importers. Um, These lead to trade diversion, higher prices, and, of course, market uncertainty. The other problem is that The US application of this US CVD law, in my opinion, reflects a capture by the domestic industry. Um, There are misguided and politicized policy choices and methodological tricks, duties that exceed uh, that necessary to remedy injurious subsidization. um, And these measures, because of all of these tricks, uh, are repeatedly challenged and defeated at the WTO and the US courts. Um, I don't have time to get into those right now, but I detail those in my paper. And and many of them are um, ongoing a- as we speak. Um, and again, the last problem is that these distract from the very real problems that we have with foreign subsidies and other foreign government practices. And of course, again, undermine any efforts the United States could put forth to lead some sort of global subsidy reform. So what do we do? Well. My solution, as I said, is uh, for U.S. policymakers to push for global subsidy reform. And this is especially true if they want to expand U.S. exports. It seems like every American politician these days is talking about how we have to revive the economy with exports. Well, as these uh, burgeoning CVD cases in places like China show against U.S. imports, the more we push exports, the more we subsidize them, the more they're going to get hit with countervailing duties. But before we can do this via anti subsidy rules or any other mechanism, uh, the US must document and reform, document and then reform and eliminate targeted subsidies. I know that USTR kind of does this in an occasional report to the WTO, but there is no systematic effort in the US government to do this. And thus, we don't know what the total effects of our targeted subsidies are. We don't know the the economic effects of our countervailing duty measures. Um, And to to do this, um, there are things our politicians can say. First, they can raise the threat of anti subsidy duties on US exports. In other words, saying, look, I have to do this, because if you want to export to China, you're going to get hit with CVD cases. And in fact, just a couple days ago, the EU terminated a CVD case on American ethanol because we terminated the ethanol subsidy in 2011. These things actually do kind of work sometimes. Uh, So the other thing that our policymakers can do is promise to vigorously litigate foreign subsidies, again, through CBD law or at the WTO. Then the second uh, suggestion is that we reform the application of US CBD law. Um, I've given a very long and boring list of reforms in the paper. I don't need to tell you those. Uh, But a couple things I would mention. Monitoring and transparency. As I mentioned, we don't do that now. We really should. The second is real consultations. WTO rules and U.S. law actually require governments to undergo consultations before these disputes begin, either via CVD investigation or a WTO dispute. The problem is these consultations are a joke. Uh, Sometimes the governments don't show up. Nobody knows what goes on. And the next thing you know, we have duties on products. A real consultations approach uh, with the threat of impending duties might be able to do something here. Uh, Then, of course, to clean up the giant mess that is the countervailing duty and NME or non-market economy Issue, China of course being the biggest non-market economy under the anti-dumping law, but Vietnam is also included. Uh, There are a host of problems with this. I document them in the paper, but it took an act of Congress to overrule the U.S. courts to get uh, to reapply all of these CBDs to to China as an NME instead of doing a much more logical and sound reform that keeps us out of the WTO and keeps us out of U.S. courts. Um, and then finally make all these other really boring methodological fixes that I mentioned. And, of course, if we don't do this, then really it's just more of the same. Um, and the debacles we see with Solyndra and Abound and, some, and many of the others that Tim writes about will inevitably continue. So thank you.
3: Okay, great, thank you. And um, uh, I immediately have to start by apologizing for my um, lack of groovy graphics. <laughs> um, I'm no longer in the big law firm world and don't have um, uh, an IT department. Uh, I, I googled that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, and, and very little facility with uh, with uh, PowerPoint, So, but mercifully there aren't very many slides, so uh, you won't be afflicted uh, excessively. Um, uh, I'm John Magnus. Um, a trade practitioner here in town, 22 years now, and a a, a large part of my client work has focused in the area of subsidies and subsidy control. Uh, Big honor to be uh, here in front of all of you, Uh, a a real gas to be uh, in front of an audience that includes two former students, and I will uh, start by apologizing to the two of you. You've heard some of this before. Uh, uh, One third of Uncle Sam's International Trade Commission in attendance, Um, uh, uh, and and a great topic. uh, I have uh, uh, no ability to advance these slides. There we go, three things that I'm gonna quickly cover. Uh, I'll start with some reactions to uh, Scott's paper, uh, uh, which is definitely worth the full read um, uh, and, and uh, repays that reading uh, um, uh, all the way through. Um, and then uh, I have some uh, ideas to share with you on improving subsidy control. Uh, and, then, and then some uh, ticklers at the end about uh, anti-subsidy measures, new anti-subsidy measures Uh, that have been proposed uh, here in the United States um, and raise some interesting questions, very worthy of the the, uh, attention of a a think tank audience. Um, uh, So starting with Scott's uh, paper um, and points of agreement with that paper, uh, the most important point of agreement is, in fact, uh, that uh, there are too many subsidies everywhere. Uh, He's entirely correct about that. His uh, tour of US government subsidies uh, hits three A's. Uh, agriculture, alternative energy, and, aeros, uh, and uh, autos, uh, and then by um, uh, 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 what he has to say about uh, ex- the export credit world and-, and certainly what you heard from Tim. Uh, uh, That brings up a fourth A, which of course is aerospace. Uh, But there is uh, a lot elsewhere in the alphabet as well. Uh, 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 B reminds me of batteries, which reminds me of the Advanced Battery Consortium. And then you can just sort of go on through it. It might be an interesting parlor game uh, for budget geeks to try to (laughs) come up with one for every letter of the alphabet. a further point of, uh, uh, I guess you could call this agreement, I, I, I felt that um, uh, all, all of the downsides of these subsidies that Scott went through, um, uh, and may, maybe I just missed this, but you know, th- 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 there, there's one more bullet I would add, which is, of course, that a government that subsidizes less requires uh, less revenue. Um, and uh, government is larger in everybody's life because it, on top of everything else it's doing, it is trying to find money with which to bestow subsidies. Uh, also uh, would like to congratulate Scott on doing carefully something that other people often don 't which is um, uh, uh, when you're talking when you 're grouping together and doing calculations uh, top line numbers and subsidization and so forth it 's of course always a bad idea to lump together subsidies that are in grant form and subsidies that are in other forms. Um, uh, there was a fascinating moment i don 't know who who was uh, Still in front of the television during the uh, aftermath of the last presidential debate, but there was a, a wonderful little moment that I'm sure uh, gave a charge to all the subsidy geeks in the audience uh, when um, uh, uh, candidate uh, Governor Romney's uh, complaint about about the uh, Obama spending on. On um, alternative energy, and he had some top-line number. I can't remember what it was, 90, yeah. but one of in the spin room, one of the defenders of the president said, "Well, wait a minute. Now, you know, some of those were loans, <laughs> and so you know, uh, and of course, you know, the, the grant equivalent. If you have a hundred-dollar loan, and it's a soft loan, and it should have been at eight percent, but it was only at six percent. Well, that's not a hundred-dollar subsidy. It's something less. I'm not qualified to tell you how much less." Uh, but anyway, Scott's very careful about that, uh, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, I should disclose that I have been involved in some of the uh, rent-seeking behavior that he rightly denounces.
4: <laughs>
3: uh, I helped one client get a uh, share of a limited pool of uh, DOE loan guarantees. Uh, and I did a cash-for-clunkers exchange. Uh, oh. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm really interested to know where the other $21,000 went, uh, because uh, I only got an enhancement of about $3,000 on the gas guzzler that I traded in, but apparently Uncle Sam had to part with 24, and uh, I'd like to know who got that. Uh, so, anyway, uh, uh, second point of agreement is that U.S. leadership on subsidy discipline is indispensable, and... I guess it says missing up there. I guess uh, uh, on reflection, I'd say not, uh, not what it should be, not what I would like it to be. And I'm going to come back to that in a moment. And of course, discipline on subsidies, subsidy control, becomes more important as trade liberalization advances. Right? Subsidies have a greater potential to cause harm on the other side of a thin border than on the other side of a thick border. Uh, and, and I'm going to come back to that in, in, in just a couple of minutes. Uh, and lastly, we agree that existing tools can be used to better effect. Uh, uh, more on that below as well. Points of disagreement, and I'm gonna take these out of order, uh, but uh, one big point of disagreement is that in my view, CVD enforcement, countervailing duty enforcement in this country has not been an abomination. Uh, Scott has a bill of particulars uh, that includes uh, various items, including the one he mentioned today, the NME, uh, 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 a subsidy issue, um, uh, uh, a list of things, most of which have to do with the Commerce Department's work, although one of them is ITC-focused. He believes we should have a lesser duty rule. Um, uh, Those of you who know me will realize how very difficult it is to resist the urge to uh, litigate those today. Thank you. Um, uh, uh, Resist, I will. Uh, In my view, the real problem of the past litigated cases, not only in the U.S. system but at the WTO as well, is the constraints that have emerged on the use of the countervailing duty remedy rather than the overly aggressive use of that remedy. Um, It's narrower than it should be. It's narrower than what we agreed to in the Uruguay round. Uh, But for the moment, I will just say that, in my view, it's an odd thesis to say that we can um, uh, effectively gut our countervailing duty program and thereby improve subsidy discipline in the world. Um, uh, Even if left intact and and not scaled back in the ways that have been suggested, uh, our countervailing duty regime is at most capable of making a very, very modest contribution to subsidy control in the world. Uh, I remember in lots of old cases where uh, we got into disputes about how to interpret the countervailing duty law and what its purpose was. And uh, we would always cite this sort of throwaway line in Professor Jackson's great text about how uh, one of the law's functions and purposes is to deter subsidization. Um, I think it's safe to say at this remove that we were making more out of that line than it uh, it really uh, merited. Um, uh, and it's, it's by no means a major contributor to subsidy control on this earth. Um, uh, it's the right thing to do for a completely different set of reasons. take that up in Q&A if anyone's interested. Um, a last point of disagreement, uh, and uh, uh, Scott talks a lot about U.S. leadership uh, on subsidy control, and I, I do want to speak about that for a moment. Um, in my view, over-subsidizing and over-countervailing are not responsible for the... Um, Decline in US leadership on subsidy control. Uh, I think something else is very clearly to blame. Um, and I refer to it as PTFD, which stands for post-traumatic fisk disorder. Um, uh, in my view, and, and, and you know, th- this is partly based on sort of having observed a whole, you know, the, the, the long timeline of the US government's diplomacy on subsidy control and efforts in the in the negotiations um, uh, during the Uruguay Round and, and after the Uruguay Round. Um, You know, our our government used to uh, take the view that each advance uh, in trade liberalization had to be accompanied by a major advance in subsidy discipline, uh, really expanding the range of things that are prohibited and expanding the ability uh, to act against those things which are actionable, though not prohibited. And uh, if you look at all the rhetoric around the results of the Uruguay Round, which concluded in the the early 90s, uh, that was heralded as one of the really important things that we did. Um, uh, and uh, based on the results of some of the disputes it didn 't necessarily work out that way. We, I would say we made a measurable, meaningful, modest advance in subsidy control at that point rather than a huge one. Um, but then you move you move into the into the Doha round negotiation, and um, uh, I did not see the u s government out there really aggressively trying to uh, shove the ball far forward. Uh, we did have some discipline enhancing proposals. We had one uh, that came out in two thousand and seven to create uh, uh, what I uh, refer to as a quite dark amber category, uh, uh, which uh, was lodged inside Article Three of the Subsidies Agreement, but uh, really worked like more uh, a lot like the the old uh, dark amber category. Uh, is that is that something folks in the room remember? There was a period of time, a five-year trial period, where we had we had a dark amber category of, uh, in the in the WTO Subsidies Agreement subsidies that were. Um, rebuttably presumed to cause adverse effects to uh, trading partners. And the US proposal would would have revived uh, some of that. Um, It was a good proposal. It was not uh, as bold as some of the things that we were backing in the prior round and not as bold as a lot of people wanted to see. But in any event, um, uh, it uh, it didn't go forward. Uh, It uh, it faced a lot of opposition. It faced opposition from the Europeans who were uh, worried about uh, what it might mean for for Airbus. Uh, faced opposition from China and others and never went anywhere. Um, uh, so uh, we were for an advance of discipline, but we were not for a major advance of discipline. And um, uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see if the, if the, if the thing ever revives uh, where, what our government's position will be. I think what happened uh, uh, to us is that we had a harrowing experience with the Fisk dispute. And for those of you who were not following it, it was, it was, a, it was a case brought against the United States by the European Communities at the time, I guess they weren't yet the European Union, Um, and uh, it had to do with a um, a measure in our tax code that was designed to partially partially uh, (laughs) compensate for the fact that our major taxes can't be border adjusted and everybody else's can. Um, A case we didn't see coming, and the the um, implementation of which, uh, once once an adverse ruling had been issued against us, the the implementation process and that was a harrowing thing for for our uh, Congress and for our Treasury Department, and. uh, so post-fisc stress disorder is uh, is a disorder that makes it impossible for us on an interagency basis to be in favor of any new sort of discipline on any subsidies that anybody provides through their tax code. Uh, so if you take that out of play, it's, it's, it's hard to be championing major advances in subsidy control. Um, I do think on the question of US leadership, it's very important to credit the uh, individual cases that we've brought. Um, uh, uh, even in the auto sector, where we ourselves have bestowed subsidies, we have also um, uh, uh, done some things that were creative and bold in, in, in seeking to uh, act against subsidization in the auto sector. Um, and I have, uh, and I'll get to it in just a second, one uh, uh, groovy idea for how we can uh, further bolster our leadership position, um, which I'm sure will gladden Scott's heart. Um, OK. OK. Uh, Improving subsidy control. This is, this is really what the, uh, uh, what, the, what the topic is for today. Um, uh, one important thing we can do is try to get better mileage out of the uh, uh, WTO subsidy notification process. There's been widespread under-notification non-adherence to the rules in that area, especially for aid at the sub-national level. Um, uh, no organized, broad effort to amp up the consequences of under-notifying. Um, I would say that what the US recently did on counter-notifying subsidies that are uh, uh, on the books in in China and India was was bold and creative. And uh, I'd like to see a lot more out of that. Basically, the the notification provisions in the subsidies regime at the WTO could contribute more meaningfully to discipline than they are currently doing. Uh, Very important that the prohibited export contingent category not be allowed to shrink. uh, And there is some risk of it shrinking. I can't emphasize enough how critical that is as a component of the overall discipline on subsidies in the WTO. It's really the only part of the regime that's proven to work well. Um, uh, we may find out some years from now uh, whether um, uh, the adverse effects stuff uh, will be uh, meaningful as applied in the aerospace sector. But really, the, the prohibited subsidy category is the one that, that we know really works. Uh, the, uh, the, the ruling the, in, in the Airbus case out of the appellate body, creates a real risk of it requires an analysis that's going to be impossible in most cases, Mm -hmm. and a real risk of that export contingent category shrinking. That's not something anybody should welcome. Um, And I would just note on that score that um, uh, the case for uh, uh, finding that a currency subsidy in China is export contingent uh, is a a relatively easy one. Um, uh, I know that uh, uh, many people would, would disagree about whether it's a subsidy in the first place. But if you believe that it's a subsidy, which most economists do. Most economists believe there's a financial contribution and a benefit and believe that it's off off limits because uh, it's not export contingent. Um, that I don't get. That, that uh, is a subsidy that, you know, if, if it's a subsidy, uh, uh, exporting is both necessary and completely sufficient to qualify to receive that subsidy. Um, and if you think of it in terms of, you know, as an economist would, it actually gives a, a company an incentive to care where they sell a margin, marginal unit of output get more if they sell it in an export market than if they sell it at home. That is the very core of the definition of an export contingent subsidy. Uh, so um, uh, uh, that, that uh, shrinking that category uh, would not be helpful. Uh, in agriculture, escaping the trap of the color-coded boxes would be a good thing. I, actually, that paradigm and that negotiating modality, I believe, is, is uh, one of the things that has prevented uh, a further advance of subsidy control in the agriculture sector. I've written about that and would be happy to be field questions about it. Uh, we've not... Completed the job and services and negotiated disciplines on subsidies there. Um, uh, there's certainly work to be done on curbing the subsidies race of the states. Uh, uh, a great article uh, uh, on um, uh, state subsidies for movie makers uh, that just came out a couple of days ago, I like the movies themselves. It can make you laugh. It can make you cry. Uh, in 2009, 44 states were offering subsidies to lure movie productions. That number has now dropped off to 35. Uh, New York and Louisiana have doubled down, uh, as has Michigan, whose <laughs> treasury rebates 42% of the cost of film production. Uh, but a bunch of other uh, state governments have, uh, in, in austerity conditions, have uh, gotten out of the business of subsidizing uh, to lower film production. Um, I have one other um, uh, uh, suggestion here on improving subsidy control. And I'd just like you to pretend that this one is at the top of the list, because maybe it's my best idea. Should have come to it first. <clears throat> So the whole point of having international, one point of having international disciplines is to help you be your best self, right? You agree to something internationally, and then you've actually got to live with it domestically. And that's true generally. It's also true in the area of subsidy control. And it's been observed that the proposal, the Quite Dark Amber proposal that that we made in the the Doha Round Rules Negotiating Group, if that had actually been in place as international law, then uh, what we did with the auto bailout would not have been OK. So uh, uh, you use use, uh, international obligations uh, tactically to uh, help uh, improve your own behavior at home. But in the United States, the connectivity is not immediate. It's kind of remote. If you think about what we do after we enter into an international trade agreement, we have this sort of front-loaded system under Trade Promotion Authority, right? We figure out all the stuff we got to change in our domestic laws, and we put through an implementing bill that does all of that. But if you notice, those bills never, ever tinker around with subsidy. Our spending programs, right? We don't change our spending, and, and farm spending is one of the best examples, right? Uh, uh, instead, we wait till the next farm bill, and if we have to, if we have to change what we're doing, well, that you know that's where it happens. But of course, it's very difficult on a front-loaded basis to figure out uh, how you can structure your spending in order to comply with an obligation, like well, you know, <laughs> we, we've we've agreed not to cause anybody uh, adverse effects through the use of subsidies. Uh, how do you know what kind of spending uh, uh, you can do to, to, to stay within that commitment? Um, what I think we need in the United States is uh, the ability for somebody to apply the brakes without Congress having to get involved. So starting with the current Farm Bill and possibly spreading beyond agriculture afterwards, uh, I would suggest that we, uh, have, we adopt as a principle that, that the president can spend less when that's necessary, when projected current spending, you know, because market conditions change. Right? And so if we're spending you know, $100 a year uh, in the first couple of years, that might not cause serious prejudice to any trading partners. And then the market moves around, and suddenly we're causing lots of serious prejudice to other trading partners. <laughs> if it appears that projected spending is going to lead us into a situation where, as we did in cotton, we're going to be in violation of our international obligations, well, the president should be able to spend less, should be able to apply the brakes. Um, and I think that should be generally a principle of spending programs in this country in order to allow us, over time, to comply with our obligations in the subsidies area. Uh, that would reassert our leadership. Uh, it would, of course, it's, it's subversive. It would profoundly change the uh, uh, political economy between the two political branches of our government, uh, but it, it would show that we take seriously the obligation not to uh, cause trading partners harm through subsidizing. Um, uh, I will just very quickly mention... Uh, this last slide, uh, there has been in the United States intermittently uh, some discussion of bringing anti-subsidy considerations into new areas beyond where the countervailing duty law touches, uh, beyond where the WTO touches. Um, uh, in particular, uh, 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 you know, in in the, in the review of the BIT template, there was uh, a lot of discussion about whether we should. Uh, accord some lower level of of, uh, protection to incoming investment by an investor who is state-owned, a state-owned enterprise. Uh, That was primarily a concern that that those are subsidized investments coming across our border. Um, uh, It's been suggested that subsidies should be relevant in Pentagon contracting. Uh, This came up, you know, uh, some of these we owe to Boeing, of course. Uh, This came up in in the competition for the Air Force's refueling tanker. Um, uh, and, you know, you had you had there uh, a Bitter Eads, whose commercial subsidiary Airbus was found to have received uh, improper subsidies, and somehow that was uh, said to be relevant to the decision that the Air Force should make about who's going to get that contract for the refueling tankers. I, I, I lump these things together. Those are sort of new, different, inventive, clever, possibly not so clever anti-subsidy mechanisms. And then... <clears throat> Most recently, in individual investment reviews, and, and uh, there, there's been one in the press just recently involving uh, the, the proposed merger between BAE and EADS. Um, and uh, on one side of that discussion uh, is an argument that uh, the CFIUS review should somehow take account of the fact that within the EADS uh, family there is a subsidy problem. Um, I don't have a lot to say about that, except, uh, except uh, that an investment, you know, it raises some interesting questions. Do we have uh, a real reason to be concerned? about subsidies when what's coming across our border is capital rather than goods? Uh, some, some interesting questions there, right? You know, a subsidized bid is possibly going to result in US sellers getting a fatter price. That seems good. That might be a situation where you really should just say thank you. Yeah. Um, maybe the behavior of the uh, thing being bought is going to change then. And maybe it needs some you know scrutiny over time. But we're not really geared up for that. It's an interesting set of questions, and then likewise in procurement, should should you know government buyers be thinking about anything other than getting the most bang for the buck, uh, and should they be taking into account somehow that that you know uh, uh, subsidies are a trade problem, and you know is, is there any legitimate relevance of, uh, of of sort of twisting the dial or taking that as a negative factor in the evaluation of, of one party's bid? So uh, my time is up, uh, and I look forward to the to the Q and A, and thank you very much for your attention.
0: Thank you, John and Scott and Tim. A lot of food for thought there, so I'm sure there are some questions from the audience. Before I get to them, let me just seek some clarity. Uh, Scott, you've mentioned that one of your big problems with the countervailing duty law is that it is punitive and, and not remedial. Right. Is there a particular reform that you think would close the gap to make, make the law more, uh, do, do a better job of, uh, make administration of the law do a better job of measuring the subsidy and therefore making it remedial instead of punitive. Is there a single one? And John, if you can comment on, on Scott's suggestion. Gosh. Uh,
2: it's difficult because as, as, you, as you see in my paper, it's mostly death by a thousand cuts with these things. You really, there are a litany of ways that things are are, are tweaked to, to raise the subsidy rates. Um, I mean, I think that most obvious, uh, and the most obvious one would be actually on the injury side. It would be a public interest type rule, um, because quite honestly, uh, you know, the the perfect example of the public interest rule is what we have right now with solar panels. Okay, so tomorrow, the United States Department of Commerce is set to announce final anti-dumping and countervailing duties on Chinese solar panels. Now, the of course, the the ITC will be then considering whether those injure the U.S. industry, but the ITC can't consider any of the U.S. consumer interests. Now, uh, we have a federal government that spends billions of dollars subsidizing the consumption of solar panels. We also have a federal government that has as one of its top-line policies the encouragement of the use of green energy. So the idea that um, we are... (laughs) in subsidizing the consumption but then taxing the imports and then so raising the prices it just really doesn't make any sense and then in terms of what that can do to affect um, our our the the CVD rates i think that that um, you know could have an effect
0: do, do you think commerce has too much discretion in how they well, measure
2: yeah i mean certainly i you know i think that the i, I think the The easiest example of the discretion lies in the public body rule, something I talk about in the paper. Um, You know, there's this rule that says that uh, a a government entity, doesn't have to be the government itself, it can be a a public body, uh, can also be the provider of a subsidy. And the Department of Commerce has has gone through and found, for example, Chinese banks are public bodies. Now, um, the discretion applied there allows for the uh, countervailing of subsidies from state-owned enterprises that actually might not be subsidies. Um, the that's and, and quite honestly, they could do this pretty easily through a different type of the law called entrustment or direction. They could go after the exact same thing. They could do it that way, but they don't do it. Um, and I think the other one would have to be the whole benchmark, the use of benchmarks. So. In order to determine what constitutes a benefit, the Department of Commerce has to find a benchmark. Now, typically, this is pretty easy. A tax break, uh, the benefit is the amount of the tax revenue foregone. But in the case of a lot of things, provision of goods, services, loans, Department of Commerce doesn't use what you'd think because they say the market's too distorted. So what we're going to do is we're going to use some basket of prices from world markets. So we're going to use, in the case of, of uh, Chinese bank loans, they used a basket of uh, interest rates from countries like Lesotho. Um, and the result is an automatic bank loan subsidy of, in some cases, 5 10%, in some cases, not much, depending on what the rates are. But really, what we're seeing there is a comparison of apples and oranges. It has nothing to do with the market at issue, and there are a lot of not just in loans.
0: John, can you respond to that?
2: Who would like the? Uh, oh,
3: is it is it on yeah. the uh, record to reflect? I've been specifically invited to litigate a couple of uh, geeky CVD issues. Um, yeah, he did it. Uh, I know. I know. Um, so very briefly, uh, public interest. Uh, We have in the United States a situation where the Congress effectively has made a judgment up front that it is always in the public interest to offset injurious dumping and injurious subsidization with duties in the amount of the calculated margin of dumping and subsidization. Um, It's my belief that in the jurisdictions where uh, there's a public interest review at the end, right at the end of a case, they figure out whether the conditions exist where you could impose duties, but then you have to sort of stop and ask the question, well, yeah, but would it be a good idea? And where that happens case by case in other jurisdictions, uh, it's pretty farcical. Uh, I don't think it adds in any meaningful way to uh, the logic of the outcomes, the predictability or anything else. Um, uh, And uh, likewise, the uh, faux calculations that one sees done to try to zero in on what would be the injury margin rather than the subsidy or dumping margin. Uh, I, th- I think are largely based on hocus pocus and require uh, a kind of uh, analysis that that uh, we can't possibly expect to do uh, professionally within the existing timelines and everything else. Um, uh, just really quickly on public body, you know, the, the the opening couple of lines of Article One of the Subsidies Agreement are a mess. Um, they're a lawyer's mess. They're a mess made by lawyers. There, you know, there's uh, as you heard before, there's sort of the Economist definition of a subsidy, and then there's the legal definition. Uh, which uh, comes from Article One of the WTO Subsidies Agreement, and it is a mess, and it reflects a a, a pretty fundamental disagreement. That mess reflects a disagreement that existed in the negotiating room um, uh, between you know gov- uh, uh, participants in the Uruguay Round negotiation who wanted to capture all benefits that are you know c- that, that result from government action, and 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 other participants who didn't, <laughs> and uh, we wound up with a definition, a legal definition that is narrower than the economist's definition, but um, uh, in, um, uh, uh, in, in, in this case, uh, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you interpret terms like public body narrowly, uh, as has been uh, argued uh, by, by China in these disputes, then um, you uh, are at risk of uh, completely obliterating the um, uh, subsidy discipline that results from the agreement on subsidies and countervailing measures. Um, uh, likewise, with the entrustment or direction language that Scott referred to, um, I, I don't favor that at all. I don't have any doubt that the that the the measures that the Commerce Department has um, uh, countervailed uh, using this um, uh, public body uh, concept that it has uh, are situations where you had a benefit resulting from government action, and for me, that's that's plenty.
0: Okay. Um, qu- questions from the audience? P- please wait for the microphone to come around, and I. Identify yourself and affiliation, please, and identify the panelist to whom you direct your question. This man right here in the center.
1: This is less of a question than just for you to explain to me something since I'm kind of new to this topic sure. and some of it went over my head. But I do have one basic question which you may, may have already explained. Uh, my name is Steve Hankin, I'm sorry. Um what is how do we get hurt when the when the foreign country uh puts a subsidy? It seems to me that economically the result is that the product is going to be is going to be sold for lower, and the consumers uh will benefit. Yeah, we may have an industry that is that is hurt, but I would think that the industry can then figure out some specialized product they can produce. Um, and and work their way around it,
2: and we'd all end up better. So I don't understand why we do this. Maybe it's obvious. No, no. Spoken like a pure free market economist, I think it's a great question. It's something I hit on in the paper. And again, I'm going to use an example of solar panels. So there are two problems. First is the economic. Because we are a global market, the foreign subsidization causes massive distortions, particularly by a major player like, say, China. Causes massive economic distortions in the United States market. A lot of misallocated capital, a lot of misallocated resources. In the case of China, we're now seeing all of those Chinese subsidies to green power uh, have caused uh, serious overcapacity in the Chinese solar industry and in the Chinese wind industry, now on the verge of bankruptcy. That's not good for anybody because we are going. We now have a glut of increasingly out-of-date solar panels causing a big mess, again, a lot of misallocated capital. Um, the second, though, is political.
1: Yeah.
2: Right, but we have. And
1: the market g- essentially corrects
2: the mistake that
4: they're big. <laughs>
0: yeah. I think it's the, it's the number one excuse for subsidizing domestic firms. That's the, those, those Well, that's what I, would, that they,
2: yeah. I was. going to get to the second is the political. So that's the, the economic issue, but the political is, in my opinion, the bigger problem, and the, that is that domestic industries use foreign subsidization as an excuse to get their own subsidies and for protectionism. We see it routinely. And as I mentioned in my my talk and in the paper, it's not just big government anti-market folks on Capitol Hill who do this. And so the problem you have is a very vicious cycle. You have foreign subsidization leading to subsidized imports leading to creating excuses for big American subsidies. And of course, we don't have the money. It causes major problems in our economy. It breeds cronyism and, once again, causes a lot of global trade disputes. So not only do you have the economic distortions issue, but in my opinion, the bigger problem is the political. You need something to short circuit that cycle. And clearly, it ain't working what we're doing right now.
1: And I, I wonder, my question though is do those Yes, it gives excuses to Boeing because now Boeing can say, "Well, we wouldn't want to be subsidized at all, except Airbus is subsidized." And does is that does that actually win over any lawmakers? I mean, Marco Rubio uh, got had tons of fundraisers hosted by the Fonzul brothers sure. down there in Florida, and I think that yeah, that's probably the argument that they made to him. So I do think it matters. I think I don't think Marco Rubio was bribed by the Fanjul brothers. I think that because they were hosting, they are the biggest sugar farmers in Florida, family sugar farmers. I think they host a fundraiser for him that allows them to like time to get his ear and they're arguing there's one of the Fanjul brothers gives only to Democrats. The so one who gives only to Republicans was hosting these fundraisers for Rubio and he knows he's got to make a conservative argument, a conservative sounding argument for sugar and it's well Here's the thing. These other guys are, produ- are subsidizing their sugar import, their sugar production, so we need to keep out their foreign sugar. And I do feel like in that case at least you've got one more senator on board for this, this protectionist policy because of that argument, because of the foreign subsidies.
2: Right. And if you can, and if you could say to someone like Marco, Marco Rubio that all these subsidies, um, first of all, we can counteract the foreign subsidies with our own with global anti-subsidy rules. And second, all of the exports from so and so sugar producer in Florida are going to be subject to countervailing duty investigations in foreign countries or anti-subsidy litigation, as we're seeing more and more.
0: Good questions. <clears throat> uh, this woman in the uh, mustard-colored jacket.
4: Thank you. I'm Wu from China, now studying at Georgetown University Law Center as a PhD student. My question is about China and uh, uh, as you mentioned, that a lot of issues surrounding China are very difficult to understand from both economic perspective and legal perspective. For example, the non uh, for example the state-owned enterprise issues, and also maybe you have known that um, the land use right issues in China. So, if you are proposing a reform of the U.S. CVD laws, what kind of basis? you are going to have for such reform. Like maybe economic basis or legal basis or political science basis. Because if you are trying to make reforms, what kind of, uh, you need to like have certain basis to make that reform. However, these issues are kind of hard to explain under economic principles and legal principles. And second part of my question is that if you are making the reforms, are they going to be inconsistent with the WTO ruled rules, right. specifically the ASCM? Thank you.
2: Well, I'll take the first question or the second question first because it's a lot easier. Um, in fact, many of the reforms I'm proposing in my paper are to bring US policy into conformity with existing WTO rules or to do things that certainly wouldn't affect. Uh, um, uh, WTO disciplines uh, um, or or run up against any problems with WTO disciplines. Um, Your first question is a lot more difficult. However, um, I talk about some of the things you brought up, like land use rights, state-owned enterprises. I talk about those a bit in my paper because they run up against uh, the Department of Commerce's current methodologies, uh, some of which I feel are are, uh, misapplied. Um, There are ways to address a lot of these issues without doing what DOC does. Uh, For example, I'll I'll go back to the state enterprise issue because I think it's it's pretty it's a lot more straightforward. Um, Again, you can, instead of just simply calling a Chinese bank a public body and determining that all of its bank loans are de facto subsidies, that's it, they're subsidies, you can instead investigate the transactions and determine whether those loans were actually entrusted or directed, the banks were entrusted or directed to provide the loans. The law allows for that. Um, And on land use rights, there are ways to construct benchmarks that instead of using, for example, an external benchmark from Thailand, There are ways to construct benchmarks that are perhaps more indicative of the actual market conditions in China than uh, what DOC is doing. Um, And I just would say a broader point. Uh, You know, one of the things I really tried to do in the paper is not to gut the CVD law. Instead, Almost every reform I propose allows for an alternative approach to get at the same subsidy or same issue via just simply a more rational and WTO consistent
4: way.
3: On the, um, very briefly, on the point about WTO consistency, the uh, what the US government is doing uh, with respect to out-of-country benchmarks has been examined and upheld in the WTO system. Well. Um, in an environment where almost nothing that any investigating authority ever does gets upheld in the WTO system, that part of the U.S. Uh, uh, approach has been upheld. It's it's regrettable and, and also um, I'm sure quite insulting to to say you know well um, uh, we have to go elsewhere in order to figure out what uh, the value of land use ought to be in this jurisdiction. Um, um, very regrettable, but. Um, uh, in 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 the agency's view the existing data don't actually allow you to come up with something that that qualifies as an actual market benchmark and so you know they have a job to do they need to come up with a benchmark if they don't see within the country something that's usable um that doesn't absolve them of the need to come up with something um and they certainly have you know i mean th- there's no category where out of country benchmarks are more jarring than for land use I'll certainly grant you that um uh, and on on the state owned enterprises i don't know i guess i guess your question had to do with the situation where um, state owned enterprises are alleged to be bestowing subsidies on behalf of the government or when state owned enterprises are themselves are respondent in one of these cases yeah. me too You know, the results of WTO dispute settlement under under entrustment or direction have been um, a mixed bag, uh, a very mixed bag. Um, And uh, where the Commerce Department believes that it can say that that this actually is not a situation of entrustment or direction, but actually just is uh, itself government action, um, it's far cleaner and far safer,
2: easier.
0: This guy looks familiar to me. Ah. Dan Griswold, my, my predecessor
2: here. My, my former boss. I've been introduced already. Uh, Dan
3: Griswold with the National Association of Foreign Trade Zones and former well colleague of Dan and Scott. Uh, if I understood John Magnus right, he was arguing that uh, an undervalued currency is a clear, obvious, and actionable export subsidy. And I just would like to hear the other panelists react to that, because it seems to me that would open up uh, a whole new avenue of countervailing duties that would leave the current uh, list of actions uh, in, in its wake. It would it would ramp up the whole CVD action, uh, I think, several fold.
0: If I just might yeah, say sure. one thing. Uh, I mean I think an undervalued currency, particularly in China's case, where it's an export processor, where it imports all so many of its raw materials and components, is a tax. And it's a tax on producers. And I think that sort of countervails the, <laughs> any benefits they get on the export side.
1: I, I just have a quick story to tell about the, the China thing. Um, it's always... Chuck Schumer, senator from New York, who's pushing these bills in Congress about um, you know China manipulating its currency, and he's not like the guy you think of as a hard hat, lunch pail type manufacturing guy so sort of my instinct is always to think which hedge funds that are really close to chuck schumer are you know planning to benefit when this bill goes through or something like that so i i wrote this article sort of almost like a, a, a what they'd call a blind item just be like if chuck schumer's caring about this you know there's probably some finance guys who are betting on it i get a phone call a couple hours after it runs um guy i forget you know i am you know Dan Stephenson, uh with Coleman Research, uh, working on behalf of a hedge fund. And I gotta ask you, so what do you think are the odds of this bill passing out of committee? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I said, I'll tell you what I think the odds are when you tell me who your client is because you just answered my, art- my article's question, didn't you, there? Um, we, we never got anywhere, but the, I, I felt bad for this client that was paying him to call up random reporters and ask him the odds that Bill was going to pass out a committee. But a lot of that stuff, um, yeah, it, the, the finance uh, I, on this side drives a lot of that, Just often just betting on whether the RMB is going to go up or not or anything like that.
2: And I'll just give uh, one concrete example. It's in the paper. Um, and that is uh, this slippery slope issue that you describe. Um, quite honestly, um, you know, we can debate the legality of whether currency is an export subsidy to put you all to sleep quite quickly. And we have beers to get to, so I won't do that. But I will talk about, you know, one thing that's uh, that's we've been talking about already is this benchmark issue, right? Well, the way that the currency laws or legislation is out there is that it simply, it, it's going to compare the Chinese currency to a basket of currencies, and then the difference between the two is your subsidy, right? Well, the problem is that, According to a recent Peterson Institute report, there are 100 100 countries out there that manipulate their currency and have undervalued currencies that, without getting too much into the weeds, could quite possibly end up the target of some very creative petitioner's council. So you go down that road, you think you're only targeting China, and the next thing you know, it's, I don't know, Switzerland or Russia, or yes, as Brazil might point out, the United States. Brazil is out there right now screaming and yelling about how the Fed is, and the Obama administration is devaluing the currency for export benefit. Now, I don't know if they're doing that, and I don't care. But the point is that the minute you go down this road, there is no turning back. And so you think it's just the US bashing China. Well, just wait.
3: One uh, very quick comment, if I may. And I, I don't know if this will give you any comfort or not. but. Um the export contingency piece of this is by far the easiest and the most obvious fair debate about whether it's a subsidy in the first place and there uh the question really has to do with the benefit and and is it valued wrong no question at all about whether it's export contingent because exporting is the only thing you need to do to get it <laughs> it's sufficient and it's necessary um and 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 you know to to scott's point um uh, there is something unique about China's system, which is that all of the exchanges for RMB for, of RMB for dollars happen at a government window. So every single one of them is a financial contribution. Because that's the only place where you can make that exchange. So all that leaves you is the benefit issue. And, and if you don't think it's a benefit, then you don't think it's a subsidy. If you don't think it's valued the wrong way, then you, then it's not a, and you don't think it's a subsidy. That's the end of the discussion. But to me, that, that's the only piece of it that's in any doubt. Is it misvalued? The other pieces are are as clear as they could be.
2: I I would disagree, but we can do that for another time.
0: (laughs) Unfortunately, we're out of time for questions here, but we can move the discussion up the spiral staircase and have some beer and wine and cheese. And I'm sure the panelists would all love to chat with you further. Thank you so much for coming, and let's hear it for the panel.